singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in two ways. Number one, you can go and write a brief review on iTunes. Or number two, you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply make a donation. You know, people often ask me about my most favorite interview that I have ever done. And my usual answer that I always give to that common question is that interviews are like children. Basically, even if we have our own favorites, it is not very wise to share that publicly because all kinds of problems would follow. Well, after doing almost 250 interviews, I can say that I can hardly remember that I have ever done an interview that had had a greater impact on the way I perceived the world, the way I perceived uh, concepts such as the technological singularity, technology in general, foresight, um, and transhumanism as much as my first interview with Carl Schroeder. We did that interview eight years ago, and we talked a lot about uh, transhumanism and the technological singularity, as well as uh, Carl Schroeder's background. So today, I will try not to repeat any of those questions that we discussed last time. So if you guys, if you guys missed that episode, I highly suggest that you start with it. So, without further ado, you already know that my guest today, after an eight-year delay, is Canadian science fiction author and professional futurist, Carl Schroeder. Carl, welcome to Singularity FM. It's so good to be here again. Fantastic. It's been eight long years that I've been thinking and planning to do this interview, and I'm so happy we're finally here in my place today. So, thank you for coming. Well, and so much has changed in, in just the last eight years uh, uh, that I think we have almost a complete reset to square one and, and we have to start, you know, talking from almost basic principles again. Um, and that's actually a very good point to start our conversation because I was already planning to ask you, what were the major changes or shifts in your thinking that maybe occurred in the last eight years since our last conversation? Hmm. I, I can never separate um, you know, my, my thinking from my writing. And uh, um, I had, when we last spoke, I had written nine novels set in the far future in different parts of the galaxy, uh, uh, um, you know, sometimes thousands of years from now. Uh, and I had at the same time been writing a bunch of experimental short stories set around here and now. Uh, I'd been writing about a, a pathologically shy Ukrainian arms inspector named Gennady, um, who was kind of the anti-James Bond and, and kept getting into trouble around <laughs> the world uh, because he loved going to places where no one else would be, like Chernobyl. Um, and wow. uh, yeah, so um, my Gennady stories did really well, and uh, I loved writing about him and about uh, the, the setting. And at the same time, um, global warming and the ecological crisis uh, that we're facing as a planet was becoming much more prominent um, and, well, inescapable. And I was a new father and had a daughter who was going to be growing up in 
this world. And at a certain moment, um, around the time my last book, Lockstep, came out, which is set 14,000 years in the future, um, <laughs> around that time, I, I, I decided... Talking about the long view, yeah, 14,000 years into the future. Okay. I, I, I decided I just could not um, keep avoiding writing about now. It was like I was whistling past the graveyard, you know. Uh, let's 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 write about something else, uh, you know, not not this. And so I I, uh, I made a major change in, in my thinking and, and decided uh, the next book was going to be written like 15 years from now, set 15 years from now, um, and, and that that I would start um, uh, not just directly facing but embracing the moment that we're in. And um, uh, learning to love the Anthropocene has been sort of my task over the last uh, few years. And at this point, I'm very um, delighted with where I am, and uh, I'm uh, really excited about um, writing about the near future and thinking about the near future in, uh, in new ways. Um, Speaking of that, let me interrupt you here for just one second and ask you, It used to be the case that the near future was easy mm. because it was very predictable, because it was near, and the far future was hard. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm no science fiction writer, but tell me, is it true to say that the near future has become a lot more unpredictable and harder to write about than it used to be the case with everything that's going on right now with us in terms of politics, in terms of society, Brexit, uh, Trump, climate change, uh, confrontation between Russia and the West again, uh, even the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. All those things create a mixture which I think uh, make it very hard to look even two or three years ahead of time. And you're a professional futurist, so is it harder or easier now? I think it is harder. Uh, and I think that it's uh, hard enough that a lot of science fiction writers simply won't try. Uh, you can, to be, to be clear, you can write about the near future. You can write about, say, 25 years from now, because sufficient, it's sufficiently far away that you can make up whatever changes you want in some ways. Uh, and that used to be the space where we were writing about the technological singularity. Right. Um, like, 2045. Right. 2020 to 2045, exactly 25 years. Yeah. Like nuclear fusion, it's always been a certain distance yes. away, that advanced yes. as, as we... It's did, always right? 30 years away. Yeah, exactly. But, um, uh, but now uh, all, all bets are off and um, uh, the future is sort of rushed upon us in strange ways from strange directions. And... Um, Uh, you, you, you can't write about five years from now, because five years from now is almost unimaginable. Um, almost anything can happen within a very short horizon. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, for instance, just to take, um, pick something from my futures pile, uh, Elon Musk is claiming that uh, the uh, existing fleet of Tesla cars on the road will be fully autonomous by the end of this year. Um, so Elon Musk has a history of a little bit... A little bit of exaggeration, but not that much exaggeration, yes. which is what makes it an interesting claim. Um, and uh, the capacity for disruption from that change alone uh, is huge, but it 
comes at the same time that all kinds of other disruptions are happening. And it's when you have that uh, tidal wave of different kinds of changes all happening simultaneously that people back off and go, wait, wait, no, I, I can't write about this moment. But I, I think it's absolutely critical that we write about this moment. Yes. Um, what is this moment? How would you qualify this moment? Because one of the, the things that you guys as science fiction authors and professional futurists uh, have to contend with is to separate signal from noise. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and we are in a moment historically, politically, socially, uh, legally, ethically, where there's so much noise that it's really hard to separate the signal from the noise. So how do you separate one from the other and what is the signal that you're getting? How do you qualify consequently that moment that we're in right now? Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, it's strange because in, uh, in fact, the world is absolutely no different than it was 50 years from now, right? The world is the world. It is what it was. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's, again, not going to change in the future. So, and yet it doesn't feel like the same world. No. It, it feels like it's not the world that it used to be 50 years ago. At the same time, I, I agree with you, and yet mm -hmm. it is and it isn't. Yeah. Um, what what I, I'm, I'm sort of in, enjoying uh, lately, uh, and again, coming back to the idea of uh, enjoying living in, in, the, in the Anthropocene, is um, writing as if I were living in the 21st century. And I know a lot of people who are writing as if they were still living in the 20th century. And the 20th century comes with a whole bunch of um, ways of doing things. Uh, that's where we, had, we still had newspapers and uh, uh, um, TV news and radio that would all tell you the same things, perhaps. In we had a common story or narrative. We had a common story, and that's the important thing to consider. Um, if you go way back... Uh, say 3,000 years, we had uh, knowledge as a kind of social construct that was co-created by people. So you had, you had some people who were um, professional storytellers, but generally speaking, even they co-created stories with the people that they, they recited them to. So the Odyssey is a great example of a story right. that would be recited but co-created with the audience. Oral tradition, past... Yeah, oral traditions are like that, and they're yeah. they're they're intrinsically social and they're intrinsically metaphoric. Yeah. Uh, so the the world that you lived in really didn't differentiate between fact and uh, story. Yeah. But with uh, particularly with the invention of the printing press, we get suddenly this linearization of knowledge. Knowledge comes to you in specific channels from specific authorities. King James Bible basically came out and said. All the other versions of the Bible, forget about them. This is the one version of the Bible. Yeah. And that's the official one, and all the other ones are heresies and need to be burned. This is the future Bible. This is how it's going to be. That's my understanding how it happened. Yeah. Um, But at least the biblical story. That Because before that, there were a number of competing... I don't know if competing is the right word, but different narratives around that story, mm -hmm. the Jesus story. Yes. In, in fact, um, there, there were many of them, and, and it was accepted that uh, people understood it in different ways. But um, uh, throughout particularly the 20th century, what we had was a war among specific narratives. 
each of which was linearly constructed and basically as a state operation. Capitalism, uh, communism, capital, uh, fascism. Yeah. And what we've had happen in the last few years uh, is the, uh, the, to quote uh, Nietzsche, the sponge wiped away the horizon, right? Some, somebody has sort of taken that whole neat way of understanding the world and, and, and erased it for us. And um, it's... The work makes no sense today precisely because we don't have a narrative which kind of explains all the things that are happening together in a cohesive, um, digestible, predictable, comforting, or understandable way. We don't have a 20th century style narrative, which is the kind of narrative we grew up with. Yes. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a coherent, uh, even true, uh, and comfortable narrative. It just has to be a new way of, uh, of understanding the world. And this is what we're very rapidly moving into right now. So um, you can see the current moment as the, the loss of uh, coherence in the world uh, when we, we are in the middle of losing all of these um, linear, structured, um, comprehensible uh, worldviews that we've had. But Stable you, and predictable. Yes. But you can also look at this as a liminal moment of opportunity when we uh, can, well, we're, we're, we're somewhat forced to retreat um, from trying to construct grand narratives. But that also means that those grand narratives no longer have the power to overwhelm us as societies the way they once did. In other words, there's, there's really no equivalent right now to... Um, the communist threat, for instance, right, um, as, an, as an ideology. And a lot of people are um, currently afraid of um, uh, right-wing ideologies and ultranationalism. But, or of socialists coming to power like, quote, Bernie Sanders and others. Sure, but... Um, Since we're in the democratic primaries. Yes, but, uh, but others are arguing, and I think uh, quite rightly, that those narratives don't have the power they once had either. They're, they're, um, they're flags of convenience for people. Uh, they're great rallying points because uh, uh, there's already a, um, a sort of premixed set of rhetoric uh, and stories built around them. But they don't really fit either to the current moment. What we have instead is a massive co-creation of um, uh, friable narratives, things that come and go on an almost daily basis. It's what we're looking for um, is something that's familiar in the sense of the stable, long-term view of the world that we had in the past. But what and we, linear, yeah. And what we have instead is a world that becomes a new world every day. Uh, and this is terrifying, but it might not be a reason uh, to be terrified. Um, it might just be the way that we understand things. Maybe we're, maybe we're not drowning, maybe we're surfing. Um, <laughs> I hope I really hope you're correct. So we will talk about that a lot more further on. So, so if you were to put the current moment in a, in a sentence, how would you qualify it then? What kind of a how would you characterize it? What's its predominant feature? Is it that sort of fluidity, or what is it? I think it's a return to mythological thinking. Um, 
uh, and the, the narratives of the ancient world, but with modern scientific fact as, uh, as our sources. But part of the problem is that the narrative of some people has at least, if not complete uh, lack of tolerance towards scientific facts, they have what they call, quote, alternative facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, alternative facts are interesting because you can <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can go a long way with them rhetorically and politically, right? Yeah, sure. You it, can go a long way, of course. Sure, but in in a in a world that's profoundly interconnected, um, you can't. People have gone a long way sure. to, to the White House, <laughs> but they they don't have the 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 power to uh, take over the world the way that um, uh, <clears throat> a fact based narrative could well they they helped uh, a person take over a country politically sure. speaking sure and that's a great red herring because um taking over a country is nothing at all like taking over the world but it's one of the the most powerful and largest i think it's like what the third or fourth largest countries in the world and after you know russia and canada i think u.s is probably third largest in terms of geography it's also arguably the most powerful mm -hmm. militarily and economically. Sure. And, and when I go to the U.S., um, I don't find a, a place that's been monolithically conquered by um, alt-dot ideas. Right. Uh, I find a place that is dynamic, alive, where, where um, uh, there are as many different narratives about the world as there are people. Mm -hmm. uh, the traditional establishment institutions might have been hijacked. But are they as relevant as they were in the 20th century? Mm -hmm. That's another question to ask. Where does power actually flow from in the 21st century? Mm -hmm. um, Donald Trump was right that uh, it's coming from a different direction, and he exploited Twitter right. very, very well. But he did, also doesn't know everything about how it works, and none of us do. Um, so there's no equivalent of... Uh, a kind of backroom cabal of KGB that are, are able to pull the strings on uh, all of the misinformation and pseudoscience and everything else that's going on in the world. The, my take on um, alternative facts is that they will be controlled by what everything else on this planet is controlled by, natural selection. <laughs> uh, if, if, if they actually work, then they will thrive. If they don't work, they may have the power of memes and, 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 and spread far and wide, like anti-vax ideas, for instance, uh, for a while. But ultimately, they'll fail. But they could work in the sense that, for example, and that would be, you know, debatable uh, point, and some people may even get a little insulted, but I'm going to say it anyway. So for me, an alternative fact is that Jesus rose from the grave, mm -hmm. right? That to me is an alternative fact. And yet, the Western civilization, the Western world has been a Christian world. And so that kind of alternative fact gave birth to a story that united, you know, all of Europe and conquered, you know, half the world and basically led us through the dark ages and thereafter. Mm -hmm. And it's still very powerful in a lot of places up to this day in the 21st century. So I don't know what you mean by would they work because 
it doesn't matter in a way, and Yuval Noah Harari talks about that a lot, it doesn't matter whether, according to him, a something, a story is true or false. It's absolutely irrelevant. What matters is whether people believe it or not. Mm -hmm. So those alternative facts may be false, may not work in terms of uh, historical or scientific accuracy, but as long as they have... Uh, captured people's story, narrative, and imagination, they would have impact in the world for as long as that's the case. And so in that sense, they work. Mm -hmm. Even though you can't argue with gravity or with historical facts uh, like, let's say, evolution and dinosaur fossils, and yet people argue with all of those and, and say that gravity is a theory or evolution is a theory and... You know, the Earth is seven years, seven thousand years old, or eight thousand years old, or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And in Kentucky, we have Noah's Ark built, yes. and it was like I don't know, two hundred million dollars, and they have a million visitors a year there, and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, no, you're absolutely right. Um, the, uh, it is possible that um, some alternative fact will become the new world order for the next the new thousand years. It is possible. For our uh, whole civilization, not just in Kentucky, but for the whole planet. Yeah. Uh, but I would say it doesn't look like that's likely because we live in a, uh, a moment of divergence rather than a moment of convergence um, where... where uh, it is easier than ever before to um, to have your own facts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, uh, my take on this is that we're going back to the uh, the, the time before the linear um, world narratives, and, and Christianity is arguably one of the first of those totalizing right uh, points of view. Um, but the, the current moment, and it was Marshall McLuhan who, who first talked about um, uh, modern media in, in this sense. Um, it, it, at this moment, the, the media that we use and consume seem to push us back to the pre-literate way of understanding and ex expressing the world. And in that, you, you do have all kinds of alternative facts. You do have all kinds of pseudoscience and, 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 and um, uh, competing perspectives. Yeah, fake news everywhere. But it doesn't have the kind of power that it used to because it, it doesn't have the ability to control or create that uh, monolithic, totalizing point of view. And it's not necessarily because of the ideas. It's because of the media that they're being expressed in. This was McLuhan's big idea, that uh, just from the fact that you're using television instead of radio, you no longer have the ability to control the message the way you did. Mm -hmm. uh, so he contrasted the, the world of 1930s Germany with the world of 1960s America um, as being fundamentally different in what was possible because there were different media being used. And now that we have the internet, this is amplified even more. So what do you have uh, when you have uh, a kind of um, a Hindu pantheon of um, competing perspectives the, the way we do now? But here's the thing. And, and, you know, one of the books that I was reading as part of my preparation for this conversation with you is a book that we mentioned during our last interview 
that you wrote uh, 16 years ago or so in 2004 called Lady of Mazes. Mm -hmm. And that book had a lot to do with, as you said, the culture of technology and the technology of culture. But a big part of it was the ability to uh, kind of choose your realm, uh, technologically speaking, and the ability to tune on or off all kinds of features, people, geographical locations, uh, or events around you. Mm -hmm. based on your predisposition. And in that way, you can say perhaps it was kind of anticipating the uh, augmented reality or the virtual reality that we're entering right now slowly. And uh, in a world where we're kind of able to create our own bubble, first with social media, uh, get into sort of the echo chamber politically and socially and religiously that we feel most comfortable in, then with those added benefits of uh, augmented reality and virtual reality, we can even more fine-tune to only see these kinds of things that we perceive uh, are of value to us, whether they are alternative facts or not. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't that then allow us to manipulate uh, that even more so than before and therefore completely exclude all of our other realities? which then in turn would lead to exactly that point you're talking about of divergence of narratives. And then isn't then the concern is that we cannot maybe, or it would be very hard to peacefully coexist with each other if we have such radically divert, divergent worldviews uh, where they're mutually exclusive in many cases, and yet we're all forced to live on the same rock called planet Earth. Mm -hmm with limited resources and in sort of a crisis situation when as far as the climate goes and maybe the biosphere and uh, you know the oceans and, and species extinction and so on mm -hmm. and isn't it better or safer or even necessary to have some kind of a united uniting narrative so that you know we i mean isn't that kind of inevitable in a way if we are to survive even it, it it might be but it's 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 a weird combination of those two extremes uh, uh and, and and i um i played with this a lot when i was writing uh, lady of mazes that you had uh places like the archipelago where uh, where people um uh, just made up their own realities but there was a meta layer above that that had to be there for that process to actually happen um, in, in order for us to be able to um, have our separate bubbles, we have to cooperate. Um, so, uh, so there's a paradox inherent in, 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 in the very uh, heart of this divergence. We can only do it because we're acting together. Um, and now I'm, I'm going in a, a slightly different direction with my new work around the idea of uh, constraints, um, which I'm very, very excited about. Uh, Freedom within limits, I think you, you said in the book. Yeah, and um, uh, it's, it's because as, a, as an artist, as a creator, you very quickly learn that the, uh, uh, the best way to be truly creative is to be given a constraint. Absolutely. So the, the classic example is uh, haiku. Right, the certain number of uh, lines, certain meter that has to be fulfilled, or in music, the sonata form, which is a fast movement, slow movement. Or in camera. Now I sold all my camera with all my lenses, 
and I'm buying a camera with a single fixed focal range, 35 millimeters. And I'm saying if Henri Cartier-Bresson and all the greats of the 20th century were fine with a single 35 millimeter lens, why do I need 10 different lenses, you know? Right. And, and many people say that it has made them reinvent themselves and be a lot more creative being forced to work with a single camera with a single fixed lens and not being able to do anything else. Right. And, and that moment of reinvention, uh, I think, is the, the moment that we're living right now. And uh, it's because we're coming out of an era where we understood change in a particular way, that change was causal. A makes B makes C, right? Uh, and some of us thought in, in system terms of A makes B makes C makes A, but uh, that was much better. But it's interesting when you start thinking in terms of constraints. Um, with a constraint, you can't do this, um, but everything else is possible. So let's, uh, let's imagine it this way. So um, you're here and you can go in any direction, infinitely, right? So you have infinite possibilities. Yeah, the sphere of possibilities. Right. So let's place, say I place a wall here. A border, yeah. Yeah. Or a limit. Uh, it's a limit. So you can... You're, you're, you cannot go that way anymore. But your potential is still 180 infinite, degrees. Right? Yeah. It's still infinite. Infinite under constraint. And um, uh, for me, the, the creative moment is um, when we realize that we don't have to linearly go from you know, the past, using our past into institutions, ways of understanding, and so forth. Um, uh, and, and our ways of cooperating with one another into the future, but realize that we just are suddenly in a moment of constraint where uh, unless we address the global situation that we're in, um, particularly climate change, um, and do so altogether, we just don't keep going. That's a constraint. And all that constraint does is say what we can't do. It doesn't say what we can do. Um, and infinite possibility is in front of us. So that the fact that we are diverging is not a problem as, because none of us are getting through that constraint. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're, we're all sort of channeled uh, in the same creative direction. And uh, the fact that <clears throat> we're not being controlled uh, in some causal way or ideological way um, or, or even in terms of a shared vision of what we want um, is actually a good thing because the creativity at this moment is infinite. Um, this but is maybe we are getting to be more and more controlled. If you are to believe Cambridge Analytica and the fact that the tech behind Cambridge Analytica was very crude and rudimentary, mm -hmm. and that tech is getting better and better all the time, we're becoming more and more predictable. Uh, as Tristan Harris says, basically, all the big tech companies have these supercomputers where they have a voodoo doll simulation of you that they can use to make predictions about what you desire, what you fear, what you dream of, and basically kind of manipulate you uh, to, to, uh, towards their own benefit within that kind of uh, predict predictability that they have extrapolated from the data that they have gathered from you. Sure, but that's a complete sham, um, because they may be able to do so for you, but um, because you are one element of a giant complex adaptive system, 
Um, as soon as they have to predict you and me and him and like maybe one other person, predictability as such completely goes out the window. Mm -hmm. um, You're saying complexity ruins, so you can predict on us one by one, but as soon as you have like multiplicity of such predictions, then the 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 concoction of those predictions starts influencing on each other to the degree that the total prediction is impossible. Yes, um, but it's not just that it's impossible; it's irrelevant because Cambridge Analytica is just as constrained by that wall as the rest of us. Um, the, the fact is that there is a real world out there, independent of us, and it is calling the shots now. But um, now the problem is that many people still refuse to see that. Many people are still locked into their own realm. But, or... but my, my point is that it doesn't matter. They'll be hard-crushed and forced <laughs> to wake up to it sooner or later, is what you're saying. It doesn't matter whether they wake up to it sooner or later. Yeah, because they, they they'll to... just go extinct if they don't. I, I don't like to frame this as an adapt-or-die situation. What I'm trying to say is that uh, um, our knowledge of the world is not as important as the fact of it. Right. Um, and the, 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 the facts of the world right now create a certain set of constraints that we are going to work within, period. Mm -hmm. um, and whether we even know that we're doing it is not relevant. Uh, and whether we're trying to control uh, one another while we do it is not relevant to the fact of it. Mm -hmm. um, so the important political actor right now is not human. Uh, and it's also not um, a... Uh, artificial intelligence uh, or, uh, you know, a computing system. It's not the stack. Um, it's the actual um, physical environment that we're embedded in. And uh, uh, that political actor is changing everything. So uh, there is a rear guard of people who are still living in the 20th century and would like to be able to control things in a linear way who are right now, as we speak, trying to construct um, sort of 1984-type um, dystopian states that they can control. Right, China that, and Israel and in, in that maybe North Korea, like United States even, of course, and all those. In, in that traditional 20th century way. Ignoring the fact that it didn't work in the 20th century. Uh, but, um, uh, but nothing about our situation is the same. The, uh, the, the technology, the media, again, uh, just introducing television changes so much. And but the idea is that, as Yuval Noah Harari says, the reason why it didn't happen in the 20th century is because we didn't have the computer. First, we didn't have the data. Mm -hmm. And secondly, we didn't have the computing power, even if we did have the data, which we didn't. But even if we did have the data, we didn't have the computing power to process that data. Sure, but even I mean, he with, says today with technology, we're able to do both of those. We're able to acquire the data and compute. Yeah, and uh, my current novel, Stealing Worlds, is about that. Um, in, in Stealing Worlds, there are a number of states uh, around the world that are trying to do exactly what you're describing. They're trying to um, uh, simulate and then control down to the individual level uh, people and their choices. Um, 
But the, the problem, again, is uh, if, if you read, you know, even Stephen Wolfram um, uh, in uh, A New Kind of Science, um, shows how you can create a, a simple cellular automata program of five or six elements that is, even in principle, utterly unpredictable. Yeah. Um, it gets infinite complexity or something like that. Yeah, and, and, and that arises naturally and instantly um, uh, with any small group of people. So it, this, this idea of control based on knowledge does not scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's actually profound ideas here that you're sharing. And, and it basically goes against uh, much of what Yuval Noah Harari and many other super famous people and popular people in demand right now are saying. So that's, that's, that's why I'm bringing you here. That's why I feel so guilty of having waited eight years <laughs> before, because last time we had this conversation, I had such equally profound uh, sort of illumination. So I'm, I'm really appreciative of how you're able to twist my perception uh, and challenge, you know, even uh, established presumptions. Well, let's follow this down the rabbit hole. Yeah, for, yeah, for, ab- absolutely. For a second, because um, you can take this back to the idea of constraint. Well, maybe I can't control what people do, but maybe I can constrain what they do. Um, and this might be the brand of totalitarianism that we have in the future. Um, you, you simply flat out prevent people from being able to do certain things. Um, you illegalize them or, 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 or make them physically impossible. But the interesting thing about that is, is that, again, um, their options for what they cannot do may have been reduced, but their options for what they can do can still flourish. So it could be a society that we, we profoundly dislike, but it could be a society in which um, creativity and happiness still flourish. It's an interesting possibility. I like, and that's, to be honest, it never even occurred to me to think of it the way you're describing it, but I like the metaphor that you said that you can put a limit here into the sort of the 360 degree future sphere of possibilities and limit it to, let's say, 180 degree, cut half of it out. And yet, within those 180 degrees, you still have infinite possibilities. I think that's very, very well said. There's uh, another way to look at it, which um, uh, was come up with by a systems thinker named uh, Ross Ashby. It's uh, it's called Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety, which sounds uh, strange and is strange in some ways. It's it's the idea that uh, for any system, the part that controls it has to have as much internal um, diversity as the system itself. Uh, it, to take an example, uh, if you have a stoplight with three colors, mm-hmm. red, yellow, and green, mm-hmm. you have to have a switch that has at least three states right? right? To switch into each yeah. of those, right? right. Um, so if you think of a government that's trying to control its people, um, it has to have the same amount of diversity within it and diverse points of view as there are in the population being governed. So there's two ways that you can then manage uh, the system. You can either increase your own diversity so that your your governing system becomes as diverse as what's being um, uh, governed. Or diminish or diminish the complexity of what you're yes. trying to do. Uh, and that's an, another way of looking at this moment, that there are two kinds of governments around the world. 
uh, ones that are trying to increase their internal internal diversity and uh, whatever you may think of its successes and failures, this was the uh, uh, the stated objective of the Trudeau government uh, to have internal uh, representation of all the stakeholders. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, women, um, Aboriginal indigenous people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you have governments around the world that are taking the opposite strategy. Um, to reduce the complexity or the diversity of... China and the Uyghurs is probably a good example of that. Yeah. Right? We're going to make them Chinese, basically. I think that's their solution. They'll think like Chinese, they'll speak Chinese, they're not going to be allowed to pray or speak their language or be Muslim. So complexity reduced to uniformity. Right. Now, it's interesting when you talk to systems thinkers... They're a very different breed of person because when you present them with this, uh, this what seems to be a uh, 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 black and white choice, they say, well, a smorgasbord. Um, <laughs> and they say, well, in this kind of situation, for this kind of system, I would do it this way. So in a supermarket, for instance, I would simplify things. I would have aisles with simple labels at the top that right. say dairy, right? Uh, and you reduce the uh, visible diversity um, to allow people to get around. Uh, and they would say in government, well, sometimes um, you want to increase your internal diversity and sometimes you want to simplify. The question for them becomes one of tactics. Are you machine gunning people so that you get rid of a, a subculture that you don't want? Right. Um, or are you creating, uh, for instance, educational standards? Uh, these are both ways doing exactly the same thing, right, of reducing the diversity within the population. Uh, so for systems thinkers, it's, uh, you're suddenly standing beyond the moral, ethical stance of you know, totalitarianism versus democracy and, and things like that. Uh, and and you're, you're looking down basically at humanity as um, uh, something that will be, you know, governed in one way or the other, but for which you have this smorgasbord of choices. Uh, and um, uh, when we uh, look in fear at what governments around the world are doing to their people, um, we should probably remember that um, there are limits to both of these approaches and um, sort of hard limits to what they can actually accomplish and how far they can go. Mm -hmm. And that as the system changes, the best way to govern it changes. Uh, so nothing is uh, sort of permanent and fixed. Um, as, uh, as a nation or people evolve, uh, how they, um, uh, their, their internal diversity will change mm -hmm. uh, and how they govern themselves uh, will hopefully uh, match that as it goes along. Right. There's so many questions that I have on that topic, but I think this is a good point to finally bring in your latest book into our conversation, which is called Stealing Worlds. I just finished reading it. And uh, let me share with you sort of my journey through the pages of this book. So the first third of the book, I was like, uh, I can't quite connect with the narrative here. It's kind of like, it's okay, it's kind of, it's okay, but I, I don't quite get it. It's not quite engaging me. 
the second third of the book I was like mm, this is getting really good here this is really really getting good it's very interesting and I'm starting to kind of get it the last third of the book I was like holy cow this is blowing my mind now there's so many things that I never thought of that are happening and I thought the book is kind of like not so good originally in the beginning and then it's like wow there's so so many ideas about the future of governance of society of of uh, resolving issues such as climate change and the usage of uh, blockchain smart money and all kinds of other ideas that it literally ended up blowing my mind in the end so that was kind of like my journey uh through through the pages uh but in the end of the the day the moral of the story for me is i'm going to be rereading that book mm. because even though a few pages i had to reread a few times just to get the idea and to be like oh my goodness i never it never even occurred to me to think about these things this way i think i'm going to be redoing it and there's many interesting ideas that i'm going to steal from it <laughs> stealing worlds i'm going to be stealing words from it uh, but let me ask you this let's talk a little bit about the book specifics what is sure. the book about and when is it situated i i really wanted to write a, a book in the here and now uh, or as close to it as possible um, but i also wanted to be cool so i i eventually moved the narrative out about 15 years out so that i could have uh, self-driving cars and weak ai and and, and, and things like that uh, but i'm it, more with you on that timeline than with elon musk Oh, yeah. Because and, and I I didn't comment, but I'm gonna use this opportunity because, you know, it's also about the definition of what self-driving autonomous self-driving car is, mm -hmm. and where does it work? Because for him, he can say, well, we almost have self-driving cars, but you know, on the on the Los Angeles highway or something like that. To me, a self-driving car is you drop one off in the middle of Mumbai when there have no traffic lights, no signs no rules of anything and you have cows and donkeys and everything left right and central in the middle of africa right. and then get from one point to another right. point entirely autonomously uh -huh. then for me and only then for me in my definition can we say that we do have autonomous self-driving cars that's why i'm more with you that it's not going to be 2021 or let alone 2020 mm -hmm. it's going to be more like 2030 2035 maybe but it's surely not this or next year well, you see, that's exactly what I wanted to write about. I wanted to write about that moment before the technology works. Because we have so many narratives uh, about um, fully established artificial intelligence and, and uh, fully established space flight and robotics and, and, and stuff like that. And um, uh, Sura, uh, the protagonist in, in the book, sees her first uh, robot about 150 pages in. And it's like helping roof a house, right? And it's like, huh. Um, but she's, they're, they're not everywhere. They're not carrying your groceries, right? They're, uh, they're just coming in. And the self-driving cars are just coming in. And the augmented reality is just coming in. It's that moment of... Transition. Transition and teetering between... Um, Two ages or epochs? Well, yes, but even just between competence and, and failure for so many of these things, right? Sure. So you can imagine every single one of the, the, the companies making all the, the, the tech in Stealing Worlds as not being there five years later, right? Because right. th they've all gone out of business for one reason. Or right. This, right. Is, this is that moment of, 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 of uncertainty. Including for our civilization. Sure. Um, and uh, that's... Uh, 
that's what the book is about. Is I, I call it pre-apocalyptic fiction. <laughs> it's 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 trying to describe that moment when the world could go either way. Uh, and the thing about it is that um, because we're living in this sort of new mythological time, are we in this kind of moment? Um, well, I thought. We might be. Um, uh, if we are, then we, you, you can't describe it a, in a journalistic sort of way. You, you, you can't say, uh, uh, it was the year 2035, right? <laughs> that, this was happening in China. This was happening. No, we're, we're, we're looking through the eyes of uh, Sura Nealon, who's this 28-year-old slacker with a high school education, um, who really isn't that interested in uh, politics. Uh, or what's going on anywhere else in the world. Um, and even if she was, wouldn't be able to put together a better picture of what's going on than anybody else. That's kind of Lydia in the uh, Lady of Mazes, almost. It's, uh, Livia is the, the ultimate amplification of that. And, uh, and there's a good reason for that, because um, uh, Stealing Worlds and Lady of Mazes are directly connected. Uh, they're set in the same universe, um, and uh, Stealing Worlds, uh, Lady of Mazes, and my first novel, Ventus, uh, share a timeline, ideas, and even characters. Um, uh, on the very first page of uh, Ventus, you'll find a quote by someone named Marjorie Cadille, uh, who ends up being a major character in Stealing Worlds. Absolutely. So, yes, these threads go through all, all, all of those uh, uh, works. Uh, but Sura is experiencing uh, this sort of shattering of the world the way that we're experiencing it, um, as just weird news coming from all directions at once, uh, as, as she is trying to make her way in the world. And what she discovers is that everybody else is having exactly the same experience, and uh, some of them are reinventing the way they live in the world um, and are doing uh, much, much better they, than they were when they had traditional jobs in a traditional economy in a traditional country. Um, so that's what I, I, I wanted to create with Stealing Worlds, and I hope I did. Uh, and, and yet, most people are not that case in the book. I think you say several times that uh, most people don't have a job anymore, and uh, most people don't own uh, stuff because most of the things are owned by somebody else. A uh, few other people. Um, and so tell me a little bit about that, because I can see sort of the pre-apocalyptic kind of point of view. So it's not apocalyptic quite yet, but it is definitely pre. And we have a lot of elements such as, um, for example, uh, the importance of blockchains, the importance of... Uh, uh, perhaps technological unemployment highly present everywhere, the impact of climate change, gamification, and all those kind of trends coming together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I have been, again, describing the book as my augmented reality, blockchain, um, uh, virtual economics, uh, live-action role-playing story. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons that you might have um, uh, had the experience you had with the book for the first third or so, is that I, I, I came to understand as I was writing it that I had to lead the reader down the garden path to what I was trying to say. I couldn't just show it all. 
and I couldn't really tell. Um, I, I had to uh, let you be inside Sura's head for a while while she went through her moment of confusion mm. and worked things out and figured out what was actually important now in this moment. Um, and it's, it's a world where, yeah, um, uh, companies like Amazon are doing massive simulations on their, their customers so that they can uh, um, get products manufactured just in time, 24 hours before they know someone is going to want it. Uh, so it's not a market economy anymore that people are living in. It's a planned economy. Exactly. It's a decentralized um, corporate planned economy. Well, uh, the decentralization is n maybe more like an oligopoly rather than decentralized because yeah. there's like four or five centers in four or five major, the big five tech companies. Sure. And so it's not like multi-centered with no uh, uh, center of dominance, but we have five dominant ones and then, so it's more of an oligopolistic. Yeah, and, and uh, in this very near future, um, we're edging towards the world having its first trillionaire. Uh, you know, inequality has, has grown massively, while at the same time... Um, the, Very much like our world right oh now. Oh yeah, f fewer and fewer people own anything. There are services and there are rentals, and uh, uh, so everyone feels like they're sort of skating across the surface of a world that's been made by and for other people. Um, I was just listening uh, two days ago that, unfortunately, 60% of the population in the United States do not have the do not have five hundred dollars cash stuffed away for emergencies. Mm -hmm. So for sixty percent and five hundred dollars is not such a large amount of money, but if there's like an accident or some kind of medical bill or something out of the predictable ordinary, worth five hundred dollars, they will have to take a loan to cover that up. They do not have five hundred dollars away for an emergency fund. That's, six, that's 200 million people in the richest country in the world. Yes. Um, that blew my mind. Yeah. Uh, and it's just one instance uh, or one case of uh, what's going on. Uh, for instance, um, Sura, when she wants to go somewhere, she'll just walk outside and flag down a car. Because cars are, are autonomous, anyone who owns a car will um, just let it do, do a rideshare thing when they don't want it use it. So it makes them money, yeah. Yeah, they don't have to park it. It drives around 24 hours a day. Elon Musk fares. said that would be the case with a Tesla three years ago sure, or something. It hasn't turned out to be the case yet, but he promised that in 2017, I think. Yeah, so what, what happens, and I don't really talk about this in the book, but one of the things that happens is the price of cars shoots up while the number of cars goes down. Um, fewer and fewer people actually own a car because you don't need to, you just hail one. Right? Right, right. So the people who do own cars make a lot of money off them. They're essentially right. rentiers. Right. Um, uh, but the vast majority of people uh, don't. And uh, uh, this has been, for the 20th century, at least in North America, one of the defining uh, symbols of the middle class, automobile ownership. Right. Uh, and it had to do a lot with personal freedom and... Yeah. And suddenly that's gone, right? But it's gone in an insidious sort of way. Sure, I've got the personal freedom, but I still don't have $500 that I could, right? Uh, and, and I certainly don't have the down payment for a real car. But I don't really notice that so much. It, it, it's somewhat similar to in the 1970s when real wages stopped rising. Right. Um, 
while productivity was still Kept going Kept increasing, up. yes. Um, what we got then was not raises. We got credit cards. Right. So when you have credit, you have the illusion that you've got money. Right. Uh, while, in, in fact, you don't. Uh, right. And, and you, it will cost you more, in fact, to buy things right. than it would have. And it would actually shrink your freedom. Right. So you would have freedom in the moment, but actually in the future it would put further bigger limitations on you because it comes with interest payments and then interest on the interest. So it actually shrinks your future possibilities. That's right. So imagine this gigantic surveillance state, only it's a corporate entity, largely, um, that is doing uh, surveillance and, and a simulation of you and everyone you know to, um, uh, uh, to anticipate economically um, uh, in place of a market, um, although it has, you know, there are stock markets, uh, they're, they're, they're kind of the, the sham front of, of, of this deeper surveillance state. But um, this is where people live and they don't have real jobs. They have various jobs that come and go. There's no stability. It's the gig economy. It is the, and it has eaten everything except for a, a small, very, very traditionalist, um, uh, mostly white um, middle class who still have their picket fences and their corner stores and their cars and think that this is the, how the world really is. Mm -hmm. um, and they're the ones for whom all the electoral boundaries have been gerrymandered, right? <laughs> uh, a curious side idea or side question, which is kind of not relevant, but still I hope interesting is like, okay, I see those people that you're telling me about just now, but what happens to the Amish? Would they also be a community like that in that kind of world is what I'm trying to figure out here because in a way, they kind of live in their own bubble and technology changes, but they remain the same. And it seems that we have created the space for them to sustain that. Mm -hmm. So I think even in that world that you're describing, maybe they would still sustain themselves in that bubble? Or I no? think the Amish could because they own land. Yeah, that's, that's uh, so they can still continue. They have basically subsistence farming to help mm -hmm. them out. Yeah, uh, according to Thomas Piketty, uh, land ownership is one of the... Um, the last remaining uh, ways to have any kind of economic autonomy uh, in North America. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is that because, so it seems that if you're very much on the cutting edge of the technology, then you can be one of those billionaires or trillionaires mm -hmm. and sort of manipulate the world and the technology to, the, to your own personal benefit. If you're somewhere in the middle, then you're kind of probably very vulnerable, like most people. You're part of the system, but yet you're very vulnerable if you're working for GM or one of the factories or whatever. And yet, if you're outside of the system com almost completely like the Amish, you're kind of also protected in a way or mm -hmm. secluded or separated from the worst of, the, of it. So I find that very interesting. Somehow you can survive outside of the system on top of it, but if you're in the middle, you're basically screwed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you're trying to live by the rules of the system, um, then yes, you're, you're screwed. Uh, and if you try and fight the system, you're screwed. Um, but there's a third choice, and this is what Sura discovers in, in, the, in the book, that um, uh, all of these resources um, are underused. Uh, the, as long as um, something has one identity 
economically and one purpose and one owner, uh, it will function, you know, within that. It'll run on that track. It'll, it'll do that one thing. It will never be free and it would always be limited. I think yeah. that was a key part of your book that I had to reread like three or four times. And you're talking about the hammer as an example. Yes, it, it, this idea comes from um, uh, uh, Heidegger, uh, what he calls uh, tool consciousness. So you have a hammer and you use it for hammering nails. And all you ever really notice is that you're hammering nails. You, don't, you never notice the hammer. Um, until it breaks, and, and suddenly you have a startled moment where you're holding a thing in your hands that suddenly is its own unique identity. Because it's no longer a hammer. It's no longer a hammer. It's this, and, and you suddenly have a relationship with it, um, and it suddenly has maybe potential. Um, so what, uh, well, in... in uh, foresight, we call this uh, moment strange making, taking something that you uh, you take for granted and flipping it around, and suddenly you see it from a completely different angle, and it, it's it's new and full of potential in a way that it wasn't before. So imagine creating. I think a... you do that very well during my hour interviews, which is why I love it so much, <laughs> and in your books. Okay. I think you do that very well. Yeah. Imagine, though, that we could develop technological aids and systems to help us do this, um, to, to strange make the world as we go along, and to see um, new possibilities and more possibilities in things that uh, we thought only had one identity and one purpose. But there's a cost, though. Mm -hmm. Because you have to break the hammer, don't you? Not necessarily, no. Strange making... Or at least conceptually or in theory. Yes. Uh, there's a, a cognitive cost to strange making. Um, but in order to uh, uh, make that as easy as possible in, in, uh, uh, in the book, um, they gamify it. Because when you gamify processes or make them part of a narrative... Uh, you engage parts of the brain that are optimized for the strange. They're optimized for the new. And you embrace it. And you Because it's it. just a game. Yeah. So, But so, it turns out it's not really a game. It's very serious. Yes. Suddenly you have millions of uh, people wearing smart glasses, which overlay um, virtual objects onto the real world around them, playing games out in the streets, in the parks, and everywhere. Uh, but... Um, they're not just working with virtual things. Um, they are, in fact, finding new ways of using the real things that are out there. Integrating reality into the game. Yes. Real yeah. objects, real places. New, new realities that use um, partly virtual and partly real things to do stuff in the interstices between, um, uh, between what we would consider to be the real world. And this is how em emergence works. So uh, look at it this way. You've got a bunch of atoms, and atoms think that atoms know all the things that are possible, right? They can combine. Da -da 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 -da. An atom can't imagine a lake, right? You only get a lake when you get gravity and you get um, so many atoms that uh, you, uh, something new emerges. 
planetary surface. Uh, um, atoms can't imagine chemistry because chemistry doesn't happen on that level. It happens one level above. And, and the f so atoms can't imagine salt. They can't imagine water, right? The, these are things that don't live on that level of reality. Um, the interesting thing is that the, the, uh, the atoms don't change when salts appear or when lakes appear or when biology appears. Um, they're, they're always still there. Um, what's at the sort of bedrock remains the same, but a new possibility arises above it that uh, doesn't depend on the rules of the lower level. And, but and new possibilities arise there. Th that are independent of the... Uh, that didn't exist at that previous level. That's right. Um, they don't break the rules of the lower level. Um, they come up with their own they rules. They enhance the, 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 the possibilities, the future options. They, they expand the sphere of the future possibilities? Is that...? Yeah. So let's say you could imagine doing this with uh, uh, economics and the, uh, the given things in the world around you, like the hammer. Um, the, 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 the toolkit or the, the workshop or the factory mm -hmm. or the transportation system or, um, or the computing network, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you don't steal uh, resources, but while you know, a car is not being used to drive its driver around, it drives someone else around. Mm -hmm. um, when a, um, uh, a 3D printer is not printing uh, a job for somebody uh, for for money. Well, maybe you can bring in your own feedstock and print something of your own, and, right. and so on and so forth. Um, and this new level of reality starts to sort of emerge and float on top of the, the old sort of hypercapitalist order. So what happens in in the book is not that one uh, group of revolutionaries sort of conquers the old way. But um, they build a new world on top of the old one. Um, they don't, it doesn't have to go away. They just emerge from above it. That, and, and that's where I was kind of like, holy cow, I did not see that coming. It's very <laughs> interesting and brilliant. Now I have to go reread it again and rethink it again. Right? That's the moment. That's kind of like the third part of the book that I was like, okay, now... I'm kind of being really challenged here because the first third was like, okay, I'm, I'm not even sure if I'm engaged. I am, but I'm, the second part is like, ah, oh, this is getting interesting. The third part is like, holy cow, this is happening and it's bigger and better than I ever expected it would be kind of deal. Yeah, if all you see is, is Sir Anil and running around in a park with smart glasses uh, on waving a pretend sword, um, you know, in, in, a, in a live action role playing game, it's like, well, sure. Yeah. But... Then, you know, you see her handing off packages to, to somebody and receiving others um, and maybe starts to dawn on you that she's part of a global Something's happening. set of exchanges that are happening. Um, and uh, these are, again, they're floating above the old economy. Um, so uh, could we do this? I don't know. But what I do know is that um, we're still using computers to do the things we used to do with pen and paper back in the uh, industrial era, when in fact uh, we probably have the capacity now to, again, simulate the entire economy, to, to eliminate cash money if we wanted. Um, smart contracts, as you talk about. And sure. Smart money and... 
distributed intelligence. And uh, by the way, let me ask you here, where does AI fit within that whole picture? Mm -hmm. Whether in the book or whether in our current moment? AI is a bit of a red herring, I think. Uh, it's, um, uh, who cares if you have a computer that's as smart as a human being? Um, uh, give me nine months and I can produce another human being. <laughs> <laughs> but it's going to take 20 years before it can actually do anything worthwhile, probably. Sure, but, uh, you know, we're, we're physically and mentally the, the ultimate generalists on this planet already. Um, uh, what, what people want is not artificial intelligence. They want godlike superintelligence that will be able to solve all the problems. But, but as we've already talked about, um, to do that, you would have to be able to predict. And uh, once you get the kind of uh, complex adaptive systems that are, for instance, societies, prediction goes out the window. Um, even a godlike superintelligence can't do it unless it has some new rules of mathematics. That what do you say to people who predicted uh, Trump or Brexit or, uh, you know, whatever such event you could have? Like, there was an AI algorithm, Canadian one, by a company called Blue Dot mm -hmm. that predicted uh, the coronavirus outbreak on December 31st, is my understanding, which was about eight or nine days before the World Health Organization. Sure. I, w I would ask what other predictions has it made? It made another <laughs> prediction about the Zika virus mm -hmm. uh, jumping from uh, South America into the southern U.S. five mm -hmm. years ago or so. And it was the first one to predict it. That virus uh, ended up in Florida. Yeah, uh, I can see that kind of prediction happening. There's, um, it's, it's not that prediction cannot be done. It's that certain kinds of prediction uh, can't be done. So uh, it's actually pretty easy to understand. There, there are things that are absolutely predictable. So I can tell you exactly when the sun will rise sure. at this point in the year 3054. Right. Right. Astrological uh, phenomenon. They have reoccurrence, predictable cycles. Yeah. Sure. Um, and there are trends, and you can do um, extrapolation extrapolations on, on, on trends. And then there are the complex adaptive systems, uh, which include things like uh, tornadoes. Uh, so you can, in general, understand tornadoes. Right. Um, you can. You can even predict in general, how many there will be this year and what their usual paths are going to be. But what you cannot do is say um, a tornado is going to appear right here on this particular day and it's going to take this particular path um, across the landscape. Because once it starts, it is its own thing, basically. You know, what you're talking about here reminds me uh, 15 years ago, when I was at the University of Toronto, I had uh, Thomas Omer Dixon uh, as one of my professors, and he had a couple of books, one of which was The Ingenuity Gap. And he had an experiment exactly pro proving your point, and I actually argued with him, and he called me out, and, and we did the experiment together. Mm -hmm. And he had basically two pendulums, and the idea was... Okay, you start off these two pendulums absolutely perfectly in synchrony, if you can, like he asked me, right? Mm -hmm. Hold them exactly identical, let, let both of them go exactly in the same way. And then within a very short time, they're completely doing totally different things, both of each of them. Mm -hmm. 
So I tried that a number of times and in the end I was able to, to kind of uh, make it be in sync for like a impressive period of time, like a minute. Mm. And then at certain point it was again totally, they were both entirely unpredictable and totally disengaged and out of synchrony. And that was exactly his point is that that's, and that's hence I think why he was also talking about the ingenuity gap and the uh, uh, our inability to actually predict those systems, even with the help of super powerful computers and, and maybe AI. Yeah. And it, it's interesting that if you... Um... And pendulums are very simple, relatively speaking, devices. Yes. Our society and our civilization is infinitely more complex, is right. the idea here. So that makes it several order of magnitudes harder to to predict anything. Yeah, I, I don't think the Chinese government uh, predicted the uh, coronavirus outbreak. So what effect that's going to have domestically on uh, their politics is anybody's guess. And that's reason. the most, in or one of the most in interesting implications now are that, okay, we know there will be an economic impact on the world economy and all those things, but China's authoritarian regime may be challenged in some ways because they tried to suppress that news in the beginning. The police went to speak to that doctor originally and told him to stop uh, spreading fake news. The guy, the Chinese doctor who originally first started spreading the warnings about the coronavirus outbreak and unfortunately he's now dead. Um, but uh, and, and of course, when you're in an authoritarian regime at the top, you know, the ones below you want to... Uh, sort of um, um, get your approval and therefore they're not very incentivized to share bad news or to share exactly the extent of how bad the situation is. Zainab Tayyup, I think is her name, had a fantastic article about how uh, authoritarianism actually uh, has much harder time dealing with outbreaks such as Zika than an open democracy where you can much faster spread the news. But then we'll see because in China, the answer, the, the numbers are dropping now mm -hmm. and everywhere else, including in the sort of democratic world, they're on the rise. And in Italy right now is one of the hotbeds in Europe. Right. So uh, you can ask the Ross Aspie, Ashby question of uh, um, which is the better strategy for control right now right. In, in China. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so... Uh, you, you, in the case of the pendulums, were um, temporarily able to sort of steer the system, right? Yeah, maybe for 45 seconds, maybe a minute, but that was like impressive on the one hand, but yet it was nothing, really. Right. And, and, and so a, a government can, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, steer, um, depending on the resources that it, it pours in. It, it's, it's, again, not a black and white thing of either being able to control the system or not. Right. Um, uh, but it gets increasingly difficult, and at a certain point, the whole thing gets away from you. And can you steer a tornado? Um, probably not. So um, uh, it comes back to the, uh, the... What about those people who say that one of the reasons why we need to create artificial intelligence is because it will help us solve all of our biggest uh, problems, including climate change, including... Um, uh, maybe even nuclear proliferation or confrontation, including uh, cancer, um, including, you know, crop failure. Uh, well, it, it's, basically, it's, it's kind of like uh, including the coronavirus mm -hmm. and, and all of these things. 
people who are saying that are conflating all kinds of different situations as if they were all problems of the same kind. Now, now sure, you can probably have a, a, a godlike AI cure cancer very quickly, um, but uh, you cannot uh, solve the problem of global warming because it's not a problem. It's a constraint. Uh, what we have now is we have a gigantic pulse of heat that's moving through the, the, the Earth's systems and primarily through the ocean. Um, and it is moving deeper and deeper into the ocean uh, on a, a very gradual scale. So even if you were to turn off the sun today and freeze over the top of, of, of the planet, that pulse of heat is still moving through the ocean. In other words, there's inertia there um, that uh, you cannot treat as a problem to be solved. And there's a delay effect. And there's a delay. So um, uh, rather than being a problem, it is now a constraint on our actions. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a brute fact. Uh, so are we misguided then if we're trying to, quote, solve climate change once and for all? Or should we rather refocus and change both the narrative along the lines that you're suggesting that instead we should consider it a constraint and try to see to seek those infinite possibilities within that constraint uh, both the, the 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 thing is that um, we have to solve the problem of uh, how to divest from fossil fuels and, and that is tractable in a way that that pulse of heat itself is not so what we have control over is how many smokestacks we have up, right? Right. How many cars are putting out the CO two? Yes. And so, how many animals we eat? How much uh, right. Amazon forest we burn? So, so we can and we, we must deal with that. Um, with the uh, that new constraint, um, on the other hand, we do have to um, take it, it take it as that the, the creative spur. Right. Yeah. So at least for the near and maybe even medium time future timeline, we have to kind of live with it. But what I'm saying is that uh, this is that moment when we can do more than just live with it. So let's take uh, two students of the master um, who is teaching them uh, poetry. Um, and they, they've been writing epics. And he comes in and he says, OK, for the next six months, you're writing only haikus, right? Um, very short set of meters, um, very, very constrained. And one of the two students says, oh, no, this destroys my creativity, yeah. right? Um, how am I going to live with this? And the other student gets really excited and says, this is an opportunity I never would have thought of. What can I do with this? So this is the, this is the very moment that humanity finds itself in right now where we can either, it's a pre-apocalyptic moment, uh, we can either decide, oh, we're done, because the 20th century linear structured way of doing things that we've had is collapsing around our Right, ears. let's just have pizza and eat be uh, drink beer and watch Netflix. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Or we can say, oh my God, this is a moment of possibility I never would have come to on my own. Um, a moment when we can create something new 
within this marvelous set of constraints that we've been given. You know, that reminds me very much to a friend of mine called Jose Cordero. He talks about the Chinese uh, characters of the word crisis. Mm -hmm. Two Chinese characters. The first one uh, designates danger and the second one designates opportunity. Right. Right. So and his point is always about, okay, we have to acknowledge the danger, but we should not forget that the next one that stands right next to it is about the opportunity. So we shouldn't forget about the opportunity within the crisis, within the danger. Yeah. So if we stop trying to solve the problem of how do we continue to have what we've got um, moving forward um, and say, well, I've been given you know, the chance to write a sonata, fast movement, slow movement, fast movement. I've got a sudden constraint. Um, the, uh, the, the world has to stop being like this, but it doesn't tell me what it has to be, only what we have to stop doing. And the, the space of what we can be is still infinite. So That makes you sound like an optimist. That's amazing. Optimism is very hard won. It, it, it's, it's not naivety. Uh, it's, it's something you fight your way to. But if you can do it, um, it can be genuine. And this is a moment when we can be genuinely optimistic if we choose. And if we acknowledge the constraints. Yes. Because if you deny acknowledging the constraints, the reality, then... They'll catch up to you anyway. <laughs> right. I, and we had a whole conversation about the fact that you can never escape natural selection in our first interview, which was very illuminating uh, to me. So would that make you an optimist yourself then? Yeah. Yeah, I am. Um, because I was kind of surprised to discover that this book, which took us through so many uh, hard moments and stuff, and, and then in the end you may be kind of like an optimist. Sure. Uh, and uh, this is the moment for it. And uh, I, I think personally I have a moral imperative. Uh, I have a daughter. Um, as a parent, I cannot be a pessimist. Um, I, I have to make optimism a, a choice. And then I have to follow through on that by making it realistic um, and not being starry-eyed and, uh, and a Pollyanna uh, about things. So I'm not going to say, oh, we're going to invent nuclear fusion and, and artificial you know, generalized intelligence and the singularity will, will just pop us out of the situation and we'll all be fine. No, no. Um, all of the problems are real and they're not, they're not going away. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but we can either be um, fatalistic or depressed um, or we can be eager at this moment um, because we may not be able to solve but we can improve and um, we may not be able to put back together what we once had but we can make something new uh, and that new thing what comes after us is what I'm most excited to think about and write about. And still anything is possible, despite that terrible constraint. Yes. Um, e even though that's all that we focus on, and while we're staring at that wall, all we see is wall, right? We're ignoring everything else that's possible that we're not looking at. Right. Wow. Your book is called Stealing Worlds. I'm going to be stealing words from it for my keynotes and, and everything else and the interviews that I go and give. 
That's that's brilliant. So Carl, we have about 15 minutes before we have to wrap it up. So I want to bring two more concepts that I think could help us a lot here in our conversation. And the first one is the idea of technology as a value. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what do you mean? Because people would say technology is neutral, it doesn't have value, you know, just like engineering or science. It just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, I talked a lot about this in uh, Lady of Mazes. Um, and the analogy I gave there is that, uh, uh, well, the principle uh, is that technology is legislation. So um, bringing a new technology into the world is the equivalent of legislating some change in society. Uh, Code is law and technology is legislation. Those are the things I remembered from that book. Right. Uh, The Amish actually know this, which is why they are still... So careful about what they embrace. Yes. And and, and experimental and suspicious and and take their time and do it at their own uh, sort of pace in in their own context and moment of choosing if they choose so. Yeah. So they're not anti-technology. They're currently experimenting with uh, cell phones. But yeah. it's going to take them a long time to figure out um, what the impact of cell phones are. And in a way, that may be the wiser approach, perhaps, mm-hmm. rather than just simply take for granted anything that comes our way. Right. Because uh, you can imagine uh, technologies the way we implement them right now as being a kind of roulette wheel. We spin the wheel and uh, it, it goes round and round and lands on a particular change to us, to our society, to us as people. And then to, people said, there's nothing you can do. It is what it is. It's, it's, it's you can't stop it. Randomly chosen. So in Lady of Mazes, I come up with a, a kind of magical technology that allows you to tune in and tune out what technologies you will allow in your life. So you can say, well, I want to live in a kind of 1910 world where there's um, telephones, um, but the, the mail gets delivered by hand twice a day and uh, um, people are still riding horses, although there are cars. Um, and, uh, uh, and this system, through a sort of combination of virtual reality and, and uh, physical uh, machinery, makes that world be the world that you live in. And people uh, who have similar tastes um, gather together in what I call manifolds yeah. uh, that are living in the same sort of technological moment. Uh, but that means they're, they're in a space of shared values. And uh, those shared values are very, very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, in this future sort of utopia, if that's what it is, when you get to be about 16 years old, you start to be able to catch glimpses of the other worlds around yourself. And you get to choose whether you're going to stay in the one that you're, you were raised in or move to another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the message here is even more importantly, I would say that it goes against the common claim coming usually from Silicon Valley that there is nothing we can do that you cannot stop technology that it's inevitable, whether AI or uh, even surveillance, if you will, people are saying, oh, privacy is lost, it's inevitable, like accepted. And your message is, no, wait a minute, 
actually we can choose and actually we can control and we have historical examples in the case of the Amish who do that mm -hmm. but we also I can give you here 10 other examples of sort of fictional uh, places and, and timelines and characters who are also choosing to do that. So it's not impossible, it is possible. Yeah, in, in science fiction, the, the most famous example would be the Butlerian Jihad from Dune. Yes. Where the, the entire civilization has decided that computers are a, a threat and just... No, no, yeah. Yeah, uh, bad for humanity. And so they just ban them. Um, and it's a it's a far future world with space flight and all kinds of other, you know, advances. But they don't have or use computers. And that forced certain elements of humanity to evolve to be able to do that kind of computation, the navigators for for space flight that previously was done only by computers. Yeah, that's right. Um, and in in our world, uh, we can see a little bit of the 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 ambiguity, why this is a choice and not a um, uh, uh, something that you can easily dictate in um, the situation that uh, uh, John Philip Sousa, the com uh, composer, found himself in in the United States. When the gramophone came in, um, Sousa sued to have it suppressed. <laughs> um, I know, we laugh, right? But he had a, a very good reason for doing that because uh, as he had been raised and as he had lived his life, music was something that you did. Right. And uh, musicians could make a living by uh, just going from town to town and playing for people. Right, because every life event basically involved a, uh, an element of life music. Yeah. Uh, and when the gramophone came in, in it, it destroyed that way of life. They actually called it canned music for right. a while. Can. I even read like 1910 leaflets where uh, people who are trying to, to fight against the recording of music and they're like ban canned music and, and stuff like that. Right? Yeah. Just like they were trying to say canned food is not real food, mm -hmm. canned music is not real music. Yeah, but there's a, there's a, a tragic ambiguity um, in it because he wasn't wrong. It did destroy a way of life and a really beautiful way of life. But on the other hand, it made it possible for uh, people who could not afford um, to go to the symphony to listen to Beethoven. Yeah. Uh, so um, you can argue that that was more important. You can argue that the uh, the direct experience of, of performing music is more important. But so whether it's a choice. That, whether exactly whether that's a good or a bad outcome depends not on the outcome, but it depends on the value against which you are judging that outcome. And therefore, we come back to that roulette wheel of values idea, exactly. right? Yeah. Where with the technologies that we're developing, we are just randomly spinning the wheel uh, and, and not really judging what our real values as, as people and as a society are. So in a way, we're playing Russian roulette with technology, and some of, us, some of it can literally blow us away. Well, let's come back to the present moment in time, right? With social media and uh, the, the impact that the, the freedom of the internet has unexpectedly had uh, on our political institutions. Um, it, if you go back 20 years, most of the narratives around the, the internet are really highly uh, utopian. 
about how it's going to open up a future of freedom of choice and, and discussion and, and uh, people coming together. Um, you know, we're not quite holding each other's hands and, and singing Kumbaya in a circle, but, um, but the, the vision Free was, from government, free from uh, manipulation, free from... Yeah you know, uh, economic uh, restrictions or anything like that. But it's been anything but that. That's true. Um, on the other hand, this is, again, still just the technologies that we have right now that are doing this. Within the Internet, which is just, it's a medium, um, we've built a, a certain kind of media that we're having trouble with right now. But that doesn't mean that there can't be others or that we can't, reform or redesign the media that we have to behave in a different way. Tim Berners-Lee is actually trying to, to, to do something about that right now. Yeah, and I've made suggestions about how to do it as well. Um, with, uh, uh, with arguments between people, what often happens is that uh, people are using the same word but have completely different meanings for it. Absolutely. So, yeah, so let's take the word liberal, right? Um, or AI. I've, I've noticed in my interviews of 250 interviews on the topic of AI, almost everyone has a different definition of what AI actually means. Right. And that's what you would imagine. That's kind of a scientific or engineering term, but actually not. And even when I talked to Stuart Russell, who wrote the most popular uh, textbook on AI, and his answer was like, well, there's only one definition of AI. And it's kind of like in my book, right? right? And then my answer, and he didn't quite like it, was like, well, I've done 250 of these, and to be honest, not one has quoted your book's definition, <laughs> right? So, and they're all, quote, experts, or most of them anyway. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, so what happens on the internet is that you get this, this massive argument amplifying machine, which is social media as it's incentivized, um, where people are using words uh, in ways that are opaque to one another. But if, for instance, every now and then Twitter were to pop up a little um, a query on the side saying, what do you mean when you use the word liberal? Mm -hmm. And uh, allow you to... Socialist. Right, socialist. Uh, allow you to define it there and then start um, either showing people when you're in a conversation what you mean when you use that word, or harmonizing uh, the conversations that are um, pushed in your direction to be ones with people who share the same uh, definition, then the, the, the amount of misunderstanding fed um, disagreement is going to start going down. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, that's a technological fix, but there are also, of course, legislative and, and, and social and, and other ways of addressing uh, mm -hmm. the issues. So even in this moment of, of time when things seem chaotic, there are lots of approaches that can be taken. Um, and the technology that is not neutral is just this particular technology. Um, there are still Again, reasons to be optimistic. If you um, uh, strange make something like Twitter and turn it around and say, oh, what about this word definition? I think I'm going to have to ask you for another interview where we only talk about strange making. Mm. Uh, and I think that will be a great topic, useful for all of us, uh, I think, individually, but also professionally and maybe even collectively. And I think that would be a great tool. Unfortunately, we're really running out of time. So we have maybe five 
minutes or so. So let me just close that loop here about technology as value because we kind of been talking about technology. Let's talk a tiny little bit about the value part though. Mm. Is that within or outside of technology? Because you see, my blogging name is Socrates and I'm supposedly all about ethics. Mm -hmm. But then the question is, is that value or that ethics outside or within technology? Is it a reflection of it? Or is it a value against which we measure technology? Or is it both? Where do you space that? Yeah. I. I, I thought about that a lot when I was writing uh, Lady Amazes, and I, I don't know that I can answer the question. Uh, I think it's a, it's, it's a correlationist situation where it's the combination of human society and technology that creates uh, the, these value situations that another species with the same technology might have a completely different experience of it. Um, but uh, I just know the technology. But you can see the Marxist argument too, which mm -hmm. says that you know, the the social system, the social values are a reflection of our economic system. Yeah, they are that as well. As uh, well, yes, right. that's a good fine tuning of that point. Yeah, be, be, because again, um, one one of the things I do in Stealing Worlds is basically dismantle economics. Right. Uh, down into... Um, you kind of make it irrelevant, if I may say so. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know if I agree with the word dismantle. In a way, yes, but I think maybe kind of you, as you said, you'd go one level up. Yeah. If that makes sense. And I'm sure for our viewers, it doesn't make sense. That's why you guys have to read the book, <laughs> because then it would really make sense towards the end, though. So stay with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, it's true. The... the um, Economics is uh, a great science for a, a particular set of technologies at a particular time um, in human development. Um, our society, with the technologies we have right now, well, maybe we really are getting post-economic. Um, it's and and that's not post-scarcity. That's not the Star Trek future of uh, that I'm talking about. No, it's it's. Um, where technology can directly serve our social and personal needs um, without the intervention of uh, intermediaries like money. Mm -hmm. uh, because they are uh, a medium. Absolutely. Right, that, that we've used. It's a medium of convenience that we've been using for about uh, 3,500 to 5,000 years. And maybe they were useful for that time, but maybe they're no longer so. Right, because all of a sudden we have maybe not godlike AI, but we have computing systems that can outrun um, the capacities of the, these old systems uh, like crazy. And hence you bring in smart contracts and blockchain and all those things in your book. And yeah, basically invented temporary economies that uh, exist as long as they're, they're necessary and then just evaporate uh, as if a game were ending. Right. And, and th those are all fascinating ideas. Uh, and And where does the design uh, sort of the relevance or impact of design as a principle come within that kind of world making and, and sort of like imagining or even foresight, if you will? There's a, there's a discipline, new discipline uh, called transition design, which is um, uh, all about using um, visions of uh, the future, of a successful future typically, um, as touchstones um, for design, whether it's service design, social design, um, 
but actual real world uh, activities. Um, not saying this is the world we are going to make, uh, this is the future, but saying th this is the pre-apocalyptic pre moment, these are the possibilities. Um, what would happen if we designed in this direction? Um, it's steering rather than controlling. Mm -hmm. um, Which is where the word cyber comes from. Right. Yeah. Cyber comes from the, if I remember correctly, the steering of a ship in Greek, the uh, in ancient the, Greek. Yeah, the Kubernetes, who yeah. is the, uh, uh, the, the steersman. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's again... You know your ancient Greek, too. <laughs> wow, good for you. It, it's not assuming that you can control the system, but it, it, it is the idea that um, with, uh, with startling and provocative visions of uh, possible tomorrows, we can, um, to some extent, steer our way um, towards a better world. Wow, that's, that's, I think this is a, a good point to kind of start bringing our conversation to an end. Uh, and it's going to leave us a little open-ended to a follow-up conversation, hopefully much sooner than late eight years later from now. Um, so let me just ask you, what's next for Carl Schroeder? What can you tell us for your near-term future sure. that's more predictable and linear? Well, I am working on a, a new book, which um, is all about um, the, this possibility of uh, creativity under constraint. Uh, so accepting the world of um, global warming that we're moving into, looking a little farther out than with stealing worlds, say 30 or 40 years, um, how can the people living in that era be eager rather than resigned? Mm -hmm. uh, because one of the arguments against this that I have heard from, let's say, transhumanist community and others, uh, entrepreneurs and optimists, or techno-optimists, I should say, is that accepting something means that you've lost already. Mm -hmm. And so they say categorically, in principle, we shouldn't be accepting climate change. We shouldn't be accepting it because that means we're not going to do much about it. So we shouldn't accept it because maybe we'll fail to change it. But the only way we could change it is, or the only uh, hope of us having chance of changing it is if we absolutely categorically deny accepting it and try to figure out what to do about it and how not to accept it. Right. Does that make sense? It, it, it does make sense, and it's a logical strategy for facing um, uh, off against the fossil fuel industry. So uh, what we uh, cannot afford to accept is business as usual, or right. fatalistic uh, um, resignation uh, to continued emissions growth. Right. Um, but that's very different from saying that uh, we have to deny the presence of this change. As a fact. As a fact. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that pulse of heat that you're saying at purely the physics level is actually a very good way, way of explaining it. Again, it never occurred to me to think of it this way, but I think it's very well put. Yeah. The, uh, th this is the condition of our lives at this point. Um, but once again, it's, um, you can view it as uh, uh, an amputation uh, or you can view it as the creative constraint for a new kind of art.
and a new kind of beginning that could be actually better in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Just like in photography with a single fixed focal length, you may end up doing better photography than with a whole suitcase full of lenses and cameras and then start wondering, oh, which one should I pick up right now? What focal length, what size of sensor and all that stuff. And in the end, you do terrible photography. Yeah. Yeah. So what beautiful thing are we going to be forced to make in the next hundred years? What beautiful thing are we going to be forced to make? Wow, I can't even think of a better way to wrap this up. Wow. Okay, Kyle, where can people find more about uh, this kind of work of yours and more about you in general? Sure. What's um, the best place? I, well, uh, I think uh, it would be great um, to, to look at transition design and uh, uh, discursive design, too. but definitely trans transition design. Um, strategic foresight and, and foresight, um, uh, they have a lot to, to teach us right now. Uh, my own work is uh, mostly uh, in, in the fiction realm, and you can find Stealing Worlds and my other books on Amazon um, or, or in local bookstores uh, uh, everywhere. And your website is kschroeder.com. Kschroeder um, Was there a dot or is it just one word? Kschroeder. Kschroeder. Yeah, uh, and I, I have a uh, uh, a website for my foresight work, which is called narrativefutures.com. Yeah, and I, I think that's brilliant. And we have another whole conversation about the importance of narratives that we never had chance to get to touch on. But that's another possible topic for a follow-up interview. So, Carl, we've talked today for, uh, I'd say, a little less than two hours, like an hour and 50 minutes, perhaps, one amazing idea just at the end is like what beautiful things we may be forced to create or futures we may be forced to create. Is that the parting thought that you want us to live with or do you, can you go one up on that? Uh, no, I, might, I mean, I, I, I might restate it. In, in, uh, but, um, but really, yeah, we, we are living in the moment of um, creative possibility. And uh, if we collectively see the world this way um, uh, you know so much as possible um, and uh, to, to bring this actually back around to the idea of the technological singularity one of the reasons why I am not a fan of the, the singularity uh, is that for me it represents the linear 20th century vision of limitless possibility based upon you know the, the power being granted to us or, or being sort of taken from the gods, uh, the Prometheus uh, sort of Myth. vision. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Just like he gave fire to the humans, he gave AI or uh, intelligence, artificial intelligence to humanity and right. the world. And the universe wakes up. In yes. The uh, and the problem is that um, uh, global warming puts the lie to that because uh, that pulse of heat that I referred to is indifferent to all of our interventions. And it's not about intelligence, but physics. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. No amount of intelligence uh, removes the fact of the warming of the lower strata of the ocean. Um, and there's, there's nothing, there's no way to... Think your way around that problem. So um, what we need is we need a different reason to be optimistic. And uh, 
for me, creativity under constraint is that reason. It is, it is that new way of looking at the world. Um, taking global warming as the constraint that creates an art form. In a way, is it like civilizationally speaking, we are kind of close to or already burning the ships? Yeah. And so we're going to be in a new world, if I may say it that way. And the old world, the ships, everything we know of that we used so far is kind of dismantling or being dismantled right now. But yet we may discover a new world or create a new world that's actually better than the old world. Yeah, and this exact moment in history is when we are huddled on the shore looking back and mourning what we had. Uh, but Instead, you're suggesting we should turn 180 degrees and look forth and, and say, hey, it's a new big world out there. Let's see what we can make out of it. Exactly. Carl Schroeder, it's been another fascinating two hours with you. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was great to be here. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation.